Well, um, Matthew said he had to be away for Sunday, and uh, he'll be back, Lord willing, next next week. He's doing a wedding. I hope that's it's complicated doing weddings nowadays. But um, so I'm happy to be uh, filling in, and we we're doing a. We were, in fact, uh, doing a uh, series on the lectionary, although Matthew last week decided that he would depart from that, and the, the verse he randomly, the, the passage he randomly picked was actually our, our memory verse for the discipleship group. So uh, it's interesting how uh, the serendipity of uh, the lectionary. And as I looked for the, at the lectionary text for today, I thought, wow, this really does fit for where we are now. Uh, we have circumstances that c- can cause you to become discouraged. Uh, there's people have to be isolated. They have to be wearing masks all the time. And it's easy for circumstances to get us down. I, I, I admit this is something I, I struggle with, uh, having difficult circumstances. The, uh, <laughs> this week I was putting in a patio in the back from, uh, and, uh, Unfortunately, of course, it always seems like everything has to be done the hard way. So the 3,000 pounds of pavers and uh, how many cubic yards of dirt I had to take out and then I had to bring in gravel, all had to be done by hand in a wheelbarrow and lugging things. And it, that has a way of getting me down. But um, let's look at our letter here because Paul is uh, writing to his dear friends in Philippi. And Paul's circumstances and their circumstances have things that could just wear them down. Uh, he's, uh, he's in prison. And this imprisonment, we're not sure exactly. It was a mid-50s, so the year 50-something. And it's, uh, he was either in Rome or in uh, Ephesus, but he was certainly in a Roman prison. And he states in the early chapters that he didn't know if he was going to live or die. And he said, you know, well, either way, I know that God will be glorified through me. But still, he's facing those circumstances. The whole circumstance of this letter was that Epaphroditus, uh, who was from the Philippian church, was entrusted with a love offering for Paul. And they gave him the the money, and then Epaphroditus went off and then uh, fell ill, very seriously ill. And uh, they didn't know what had happened to him, really. And so Paul wanted to write, part of the reason for this letter is he just wanted to let them know Epaphroditus is a hero. He came in, he risked his life. Yes, he almost died, but uh, he was a great help. And now, uh, and he wanted to send them back, not just with Epaphroditus, but also with just his encouragement, all the encouragement he could give them. And so he's, uh, but still, those are circumstances. So Epaphroditus got sick. And um, so it, the, as I saw the connections to our, our current time, I, my, um, a number of friends that I have, I've heard, oh, they thought they had COVID and then they, they were sick, but they weren't necessarily. Some actually do have COVID. And uh, so, you know, there's that constant, that constant threat which can drag people down. And although there's no, uh, you know, some of Paul's letters are written to address a controversy, uh, this letter, Philippians is not really to address a controversy, although he's aware of the fact that there are people threatening the church from within, from without, He's concerned about their ability to work together, to love one another. And so these are all circumstances that can, that can drag you down. 
But one of the things, so I would, there are basically three points that come through in, this, in these three paragraphs of our text this morning. And in the first, he's actually, the first verse of, of uh, Philippians 4 really is summarizing or, or uh, what he had, or referring back to what he'd said in chapter 3. You know, you know, he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and some, somehow to attain to the resurrection. And so then he starts this chapter 4 by saying, Therefore, brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So he's, um, our first point is hard circumstances are an opportunity, an opportunity for the gospel. And uh, so let's, let's look at some of them that, that we see in Philippians and also in this particular passage, because some of this is, is the context of the letter. Now, if you remember, when Paul, after he mentions his imprisonment, he, he hastens to add, I want you to know that what has happened to me has only served to advance the gospel. These people may think, you know, throwing him into prison was going to stop. He's like, as a result, oh, the whole palace guard, he's preaching to the, the guards. <laughs> and everyone else knows I'm in chains for Christ. And so, and so he, he says, you know, and then there are people trying to cause trouble for me by preaching uh, in you know in a competitive way, he says, but they're preaching. They're not going to stop the gospel. So his um, he's recognizing God's sovereign purposes are not only not defeated by these circumstances. The Lord can turn them around so that what seemed like it was going to set them back is actually advancing the gospel. And of course, this letter, which is a precious uh, possession of the church. Paul wrote it because he was in prison. And so he had the opportunity to write it out because he was uh, held captive. Now, if you remember the first verse, he, he referred back to chapter 3 where he said, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. There's a way in which we will never know God until we know suffering. That, in my mind, is the deepest mystery. You know, people just refer to the, the, the mystery of, of pain and suffering. In my mind, the deepest mystery, which is beneath that other mystery, is that God himself doesn't shrink back from pain. And that, in fact, he sees it as the perfect expression of love, right? No greater love has no one than this, than that they should lay down their life for their friends. And so, Paul is seeing that, so in, in chapter 2, when he talks about you should have the same mind as the mind of Christ, it had to be, the, he talks about how he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being found in, as a human, and becoming obedient even to death on a cross. And that then, He's exalted to the highest place and given the name above every name. And I think that Paul sees this as the model for his own ministry, is that he will be as abased as he needs to be to accomplish the mission, and he will share in some way through his imprisonments, through the various sufferings that he had, in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. 
And so um, he's saying, you know, these um, hard circumstances are in fact an opportunity, even in the hardest element of them, really. But then there's also the fact that when you have hard circumstances, then just even working together as a church uh, becomes difficult. And Paul emphasizes to them, your most powerful apologetic is your unity, is your love for one another, is the way you treat one another in the church. And so the difficulties you're facing are an opportunity to show uh, what's in you. And so he said, you know, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending for the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Right? And that witness can only come out through the hardship. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that you'll become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a wicked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. These are passages from the early part of Philippians where he's, he's explaining to them how their response to these hard circumstances are precisely a gift of God, really, that they can now show the world um, the true character of the church. One thing that always astounds me is his, Paul's confidence, his you know, impressive confidence in all those around him. You know, in, in the next paragraph is, I plead with Judea, I pleaded with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That's the kind of confidence he has. He says, I, I know their names are in the book of life. He's not, you know, pretending to be God here. He's just saying, these people are wonderful people. And who exactly Judea uh, and Syntyche were and what their, their controversy was is, is not important. They were definitely uh, very impressive individuals. Paul esteems them. He, he, asks, he knows it's hard to work together, and he asks them, work together. Uh, but he's, he's saying, all these people, they've been, they've been contending for the gospel. He, earlier, he talked about Timothy. He said, Timothy, I've got no one like him. He really, he really loves you, Philippians. He cares about you. Most people just care about their own things and not about Christ. But Timothy is, uh, is like my son, in, uh, and he, he cares for you. And then, of course, we heard about Epaphroditus and his heroic service. And so all these people around Paul, he is just a big fan of them. And so... It's also an opportunity for us to build up one another in Christ because everyone's going to be tested and then the way that people, and, you know, I'm sure that they, all these people struggle. In fact, Judea and, and Syntyche are struggling to, to, to agree. But the fact is what Paul sees and what he affirms is who they are and their wonderful service. And I think that that's a... So, what I see in our church here is that, you know, the difficult times are causing people to have to serve. Uh, we've been in an interim period, and people are having to do more. And uh, 
of just seeing the wonderful character of those, of God's people, as they step forward and are helpful. And, uh, and we can give thanks. One of the things that, uh, that hard times bring, difficult circumstances, is that's where often really deep friendships are forged. I'll talk about uh, one in, in just a moment, illustrating the second point. But the Philippians have shared in Paul's sufferings. And, and of course, their, their gifts represented a sacrificial... They weren't uh, wealthy, but they were, they were helping Paul. And they helped him again and again, he says. And so... On this first point, just the, I would say that, you know, hard times produce needs. And we're a church that wants to be a blessing to this city. And so I think we need to be expecting that God is going to provide through the hard circumstances opportunities for us to show the love of Christ to our neighbors, to our city. And we can be confident that this is actually not only not going to set us back, it's going to help us move forward. Well, the second point is the hard circumstances are an opportunity to experience God's commitment to us. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The, um, I think it's hard. It's one of those tests. It's really how the Lord grows our faith, is putting us in circumstances where we may not feel that God is particularly near. But the truth is, He's always near. And if you go back in Scripture, and I'll just mention a few of them, it seems to be a lesson that God's people have to learn over and over again. You know, God had helped Abraham when he had to go rescue his, his nephew Lot. Uh, he actually had to get his household together and go and militarily liberate his, his nephew. And then he received from God great promises. And you think, wow, Abraham's, he's impressive. Then, in a couple of chapters, what do you find? He's traveling in Gerar, which is in, uh, this little town in the Negev, and he's, saying, he's thinking to himself, these people have no fear of God. They're going to kill me for my wife. So he makes up a story. Oh, she's my sister. Well, of course, she was, in some sense, his sister. But he, um, he forgets. And so what happens? Well, God speaks to the <laughs> king, Abimelech, directly. And then Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, why did you do this to me? I could, have, I could have been in deep trouble if I touched your wife. And so Abraham didn't realize that there, yeah, sure, he was in some little uh, nowhere land, and he didn't think the people acknowledged God. But that didn't mean that God wasn't right there with him. And the funny thing is that Isaac does pretty much the same thing in pretty much the same place. And then you have Jacob, who's running away from his brother Esau. And 
stops in the middle of nowhere and puts his head on a stone for a pillow and has this dream that he's, and where he sees heaven open. And he, he says this very interesting phrase, which is so, so much, I think, on the minds of God's people when they suddenly see, are given a chance to see. He says, God was in this place, and I, it, and I didn't know it. And so he calls it um, Bethel, the house of God. But the truth is, uh, God was following with him and was close to him wherever he went. Probably one of my favorite stories is uh, with the prophets. And so you had uh, the Arameans were attacking, and the Aramean king was getting very frustrated because every time he tried to pull a, a maneuver on the king of Israel, then Elisha would tip off the king about what he was doing. And so then they, they say, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to stop this. So they, they get their entire... You know, a large force with chariots. This would be sort of like, uh, the moral equivalent would be like uh, Seoul in Iowa surrounded by tanks and people with assault rifles, you know. It, <laughs> they don't have a lot of means to defend themselves in, Gara- in uh, the, um, no, it wasn't Gerar, it was Dothan, the town that uh, Elisha lived in. And his, his assistant looks at him and says, man, this is really bad. And then uh, Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes. And so, he, and he says, they're more with us than they're with them. And the truth is, his, then his servant's eyes are open, and he sees that they're surrounded by chariots of fire. And uh, Elisha is not, in fact, in any kind of danger at all. Uh, one reason I love that story is that they, you know, they, he says, Lord, strike them with blindness. So he strikes them, the Lord strikes them with temporary blindness. They capture them. And then the king of Israel says, should I kill them? He says, no, why would you do that? Serve them dinner. <laughs> and so they serve them dinner. I love the story because it's how uh, evil can be overcome by good. And then the airmans leave and, decide maybe we won't attack Israel anymore. So I think it's very easy to get anxious about it, all kinds of things. And Paul lays out a certain plan here for addressing this, and it reminds me of something which really was a... So in my own life, my first house that I bought, it was in a place where, unfortunately, there was maybe some corruption with the housing inspections or whatnot. However it was... I was a new homeowner, and I had a house with the, the exterior back wall had no wood in it. it uh, previous owner had had a leak, and they had rotted all the wood out, and they had cosmetically covered it over, and the roof was being held up by the sheetrock. And so here I am, a uh, young faculty member, very busy, and I realized, oh my gosh. And of course, the system was all set up so that only the homeowner had no recourse. And I was so depressed, I was just about ready to, you know, I thought, what circumstances? Uh, but then uh, a man from the church, a good friend of mine who would help me teach Sunday school, turned out he had had something similar to happen to him, only it was with termite damage. And he was skilled, and so I was so depressed I could hardly lift my arms. 
But when he came over and a couple other guys came over and helped me, we jacked up the roof, tore the wall out, rebuilt it. Uh, I said, you guys are like angels of heaven. I mean, you don't realize. <laughs> I was completely crushed by this, you know. And uh, we did it quickly, actually. And uh, ever since then, I said, you know, anytime you need anything. <laughs> so there's a friendship forged there. The difficult circumstances, and I saw their, I mean, they sacrificed. They, must, they had to take some time off work to help me rebuild my exterior wall. Well, not long afterwards, that this dear friend called me up and said, yeah, you know, and he had, you know, he has, uh, you know, many children, and he had a very nice job as a manager. And he said, you know what? There's a kind of conspiracy, and uh, this person's trying to get me fired. And he was really down about it. I mean, he was really depressed. And he thought, you know, I'd never seen him so down. And I said, look, I remember you telling me once about how God helped you. Let's go through and let's just give thanks for all the things with thanksgiving. And let's just present the request to God. Well, um, miraculously, this plot that this person was, had done to try to get him fired backfired. And he didn't do anything. And, and then that guy actually uh, got redeployed re somewhere else. And I said, now write this down. And through the years, time and time again, he's come back and said, I need help. And every time it seems more hopeless, I'm like, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do this one. But uh, the fact is that through that, he always had a problem with believing that God loved him. And time and time and time again, the Lord now has demonstrated through difficult circumstances his love and care, how the Lord is right there walking next to him. Uh, he's caring for his kids. And, yeah, it, life wouldn't have been the same without all that difficulty, <laughs> right? All those difficult circumstances. But, uh, and I am eternally grateful just to be able to walk with him through that and, uh, and to see how God cares for him. And so there's a challenge here. You know, yes, we have hard circumstances, but this is when we say, okay, now, we take everything, in everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. Present your requests to God. And then the peace of God, which transcends, which goes beyond really what we can understand. And one of the ways that that happens is that when you already start trusting and feeling better, even though the circumstances haven't changed yet, and you're saying, but I'm confident they will. And that goes beyond understanding. And that leads to the third point. These uh, hard circumstances are a time to reflect on the beautiful things which God has done for us. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. Whatever you've learned, received, or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. 
it was wonderful enough when we were promised that the peace of God would take care of us, would guard our hearts and minds. Now he's saying that the God of peace himself will be with us. Now this passage, Paul often uses these lists of things to try to emphasize a point, and this is a rather unusual list. It's really a list that reminiscent of art appreciation. Like, whatever is beautiful, that's it's remarkable, and it, it has a, an ethical quality, true and, and right and noble. These are, this is referring to the handiwork of God, the beauty of God. Um, and to think about such things. Beauty is something inherently theological. I know the laws of physics and chemistry, and beauty doesn't, you can't derive it from a differential equation. <laughs> Even though differential equations, if you believe it or not, are beautiful at times. <laughs> Don't expect you to study calculus and you'll, you'll see. But the truth is that God has done beautiful things for us. And as I thought about this, I was thinking, what would it be like to see the beauty of God? I mean, we see, we can see a sunset, we can see flowers, we can see beauty in the things which God has made. We, the first song we sang this morning, right, This Is My Father's World, was about the, uh, the beauty of the handiwork of God. I thought, wonder what it would be like. And then I realized that this was something which reminds us of of our estate, of our fallenness. For Isaiah, who incidentally, a lot of his prophecy is songs, um, says he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. So here the beautiful God of the universe came, took our sin upon himself, and because of who we are, we despised him. We said, he's ugly. We don't want him. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. So I, have, I wonder what, what that must have been like for him to be that. And, and David, even though David, King David was never crucified, uh, he wrote Psalm 22, which was clearly looking forward uh, a thousand years into the, the eyes of the Messiah. He said, Dave, a band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They divided my garments up among them and cast lots for my clothing. And so, how did he respond to that? He praises. In Psalm 22, he gets to that low point where he's been crucified and surrounded by dogs. And he says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. All you who fear God, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, revere him, honor him. You descendants of Israel, why? For he has not despised or rejected the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. So Jesus took all our sin upon him and became as ugly as possible. 
And he said, unlike you, when you, said, when you despised and rejected, he has not despised or rejected the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to people yet unborn. For he has done it. That's what God's done for us. Taken our ugliness upon him and given us beauty for ashes. Let's pray.